Hello and welcome back to Pharmacist Diaries, the podcast that reveals the secret lives of pharmacists from where their journeys began, where they are now and everything in between. I am your host Anisha Patel and today is the start of a special series of episodes where I interview several pediatric pharmacists at the Evelina London Children's Hospital where I am currently employed. I work with an incredibly experienced team of pediatric pharmacists, some of which have been working in peds for 25 plus years. I kickstart this series with a super inspiring role model, colleague and friend, Nicola Hussein. Nicola is currently employed as an academic link pharmacist like myself, which is a split role between King's College London and the Evelina. She is a senior paediatric pharmacist at the hospital with a special interest in pain management and the program director for postgraduate pharmacy practice at the university. She leads the Paediatric Pharmaceutical Care International Internship Program, as well as the Foundation in Paediatric Pharmaceutical Care International Masterclass, which we discuss in detail on the podcast. She is also working closely with the Neonatal and Paediatric Pharmacist Group, MPPG, from an educational perspective. Nicola has built an incredible career pathway for herself, with over 10 years of experience in paediatrics in various NHS trusts across London. In the podcast, she also talks about her passion for travelling to India on several occasions, one of which involved a pharmacy advisory role for the Latika Roy Foundation. She is also a part-time pharmacy advisor for Chiva Africa and King Sierra Leone Partnership. We didn't have time to talk about these two roles, but if you'd like to know more information, please feel free to reach out to her. Also watch this space for more information on the Foundation in Paediatric Pharmaceutical Care International Masterclass. I hope you guys enjoy it. But anyways, welcome to Pharmacist Diaries, Nick. Thank this you. This is so exciting. I've got one of our own Evelina team with us tonight. And um, I've talked about the mat leave cover. I covered your job, obviously, um, a lot in the podcast. And <laughs> I've talked about my journey within the Evelina and what I was doing for that whole year. So um, your role is, is, is famous on the podcast, which <laughs> is exciting. Um, so, yeah, obviously, it's really good to have you back at work. And I'm really uh, enjoying having you to to work alongside and you know um yeah it's really good so I'm really excited about tonight been looking forward to it for quite some time now so happy days you finally got me on I was a bit yeah I know (laughs) yeah but we made it yep yeah so usually I kickstart my episodes by asking you why you chose pharmacy as a profession um in the first place okay well I guess similar to a lot of pharmacists, I was drawn towards the sciences when I was at school. Um, So I studied chemistry and maths um, at A-level. I achieved quite high grades when I was at school. And I I think that the natural course from from a lot of people's perspective for me was medicine. Um, But I just wasn't drawn that way. Um, I, I had no passion to become a doctor at all. Um, and actually, I initially thought that I would do something um, around genetics. Um, and I guess the main reason for that was that um, I had two siblings who were born with um, a very rare genetic condition, um, a, a metabolic condition called um, citral anemia. 
and they both passed away very, very young. Um, but my brother, he was born after me. And so I grew up um, helping my mum to look after him, even though I was very young at the time. Um, and so I grew up learning about, you know, what it was like to have a, a disabled child at home. Um, and it, because it was a genetic condition, I had a passion um, for science. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to be a geneticist when I'm older. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's what I thought when I was a child. And um, you know, I went on, I did GCSEs, I did my A-levels. Um, and then my chemistry teacher at, um, at my sixth form college suggested that I look into pharmacy. And you know, it wasn't something that I really considered before, um, but I looked into it and I thought, well, you know, that matches the, the subject that I'm good at and it sounds interesting, it's medicine related. Um, and so I applied for, for pharmacy at university. Um, and I always thought that I would end up in more of a lab-based role. I thought maybe I'd go into pharmaceutical research. Um, but uh, after my first year of university, I landed a summer job um, at one of the hospitals down in Portsmouth. Um, and that opened my eyes to, to hospital pharmacy. Um, and didn't really look back from then. I did another summer placement the following year. And uh, when it came to applying for pre-reg, um, you know, I was certain that by then that it, it was a, a career in hospital for me. Um, and so that's what I applied for. Nice. And thanks for sharing your, your personal story there and about your family as well. That must have been really hard for you. Um, but look at you today working in a hospital with metabolic disease, isn't it? Well, exactly. It? Like a 360. Exactly. It is. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. When you talk about thinking that you were going to work in a in a lab-based role, mm. why, did, why did you think that that was the case? Did you not want to work directly with patients or did you think that the sort of structured routine in the labs and, you know, that kind of science-based role would suit your personality? I think at the time it, it was a bit of both really. Um, as I said, you know, I wasn't drawn to medicine and for me that was partly because I didn't think I'd be very good at interacting with people on a daily basis, you know, patients. Um, I didn't feel I had those those skills and I was much better suited to something um, that was you know, quite structured and, uh, and and scientific. But I think over the course of those years, you know, en end of, of A-levels, I then had a gap year and then going off to university. Um, I, I think I developed um, in terms of, you know, socially and my confidence. Um, and so, and I realized that actually I could, I could use my, my science knowledge um, in other ways, not not simply you know working in a lab, um, as I had thought previously. Um, and like I said, I, I didn't look back after after that first placement in hospital. 
Nice. So your your exposure kind of during university changed Absolutely. your perception. Yeah. yeah. And that's probably happens to a lot of people because obviously once you start the course, you get exposure to so many different elements of what pharmacy has to offer. Yeah. And you start understanding more about where your interests and your passions are. Exactly. Um, which is quite exciting. And yeah. I mean, certainly for me, I had, I didn't have a great idea of what pharmacy was, was really about. I'd never had a, a you know, a Saturday job in a community pharmacy or anything like that, that a lot of my friends had had, um, who I met through university. Um, so I had quite a simplistic view, I think, of, of you know, what a pharmacist did, um, largely shaped by going into, you know, boots or, or other pharmacies and, and not really having much awareness of what ph- pharmacists did in hospital um, or, or other sectors either. Um Obviously, you, you, you develop that knowledge and that understanding through through your undergraduate program. Um, and so I'm glad that, uh, you know, I was open to, to other opportunities. Yeah, agreed. I was going to ask what you did in your gap year. Ah, um, so yes, I took a gap year after finishing A-levels. Um, it was something that I, I was determined to do. Um, it felt like a you know brilliant opportunity to go out and, and see some of the world um, before you know knuckling down to a degree. Um, and I chose to go to India. Um, so I spent the first half of my gap year working. Um, so I got I got a, a temp job in an office. Um, so I worked for six months and then I spent close to six months um, in India um, working in a school. Um, so I worked as a teacher um, together with some some other gap year students from the UK. Um, and we had an absolutely brilliant time um, living in a village uh, in the foot of the Himalayas, um, working in a local school, a, a primary school. Um, we had no experience of teaching, um, but we, we had a real can-do attitude and we, we threw ourselves into it um, and ha- had a great time and hopefully you know, provided a, a great experience to the children that, that we were teaching. And nice. I, I got to see some of the country as well, um, so a bit of traveling afterwards, um, which was fantastic. Oh, that sounds good. I didn't, uh, do you like Indian food a lot then? I do, I do. Amazing. I will, I can invite you to my mom's place. She's an <laughs> amazing cook. <laughs> well, I have, uh, I have Pakistani heritage, so. Uh, oh, do you? Yeah, yeah, that's where my surname is from. Yeah, I actually, I've been meaning to ask you this. <laughs> I didn't know if it was from, um, um, whether it was your husband's surname. No, no, no. Interesting. God, I learn something new about you every day. You do. I love it. <laughs> cool. Um, that's exciting. So when you um, finished your pre-reg year, you obviously applied for the residency at um, Guy's and St. Thomas's. That's right, yeah. Um, why Why did you choose the, the residency over a, a, a traditional kind of rotational um, band six job? Do you remember? Do you remember? Oh, do I remember? <laughs> well, um, so I guess going a step back um, – so I, I did my degree in Cardiff, um, and then when it came to applying for pre-reg, um, I decided I, I wanted to to move to London to experience living in the capital, working in a in a large hospital, 
um, and I was fortunate to get a place at Guys and St. Thomas's for my pre-reg. Um, and then, um, I mean, I had a great time. It, it was a fantastic learning experience, worked with some pretty amazing people. Um, and I decided that if they would have me, I would I would want to stay on and, and be a resident there. It's obviously one of the largest trusts, um, great place for learning, great opportunities. Um, and I was successful at that. So I uh, landed a job as a resident. It was an extremely tough learning curve. Um, obviously, being a resident in, in such a, a busy, large trust, you, you literally have everything thrown at you um, during the night on your own, having to make decisions independently, um, thinking on your feet, working under pressure, heavy workload. Um, but it was the best learning opportunity. It, it was the best way to develop as a, a newly qualified pharmacist. Um, and, and it gave me a huge amount of confidence in that I knew that I could not cope with everything or anything that, that, that's maybe a, a step too far, but that I knew how to problem solve. Um, and I knew how to, how to tackle problems and also when to, when to ask for help. So what my limitations mm. were, and I think they're they're absolutely critical skills that you need um, as a pharmacist, and to be able to develop them early on, I think really set me set me up well. I know. I always say the same thing, and I have talked about this so many times on the podcast that I I hundred percent wouldn't be who I am without having done that job in Oxford as a resident mm. for three years. Yeah. It really provided the grounding that I personally needed to grow in pharmacy and it gave me the opportunity to well the exposure to so many amazing clinical areas and brilliant consultant pharmacists and amazing teams to work with lots of variety as well um, in terms of the rotations and what you do on each rotation um, whether you're you know in a ward-based environment whether you're in medicines information pediatrics everywhere had something interesting to offer Absolutely. It was really a, a, a good learning curve. And, you know, the, like even we had, you know, gastro rotations, um, gastro surgery, and we were, we were doing TPN rounds as band sixes very early on within um, the residency, which was so exciting um, and such a nice feeling to work in that sort of MDT environment and on your own. Because as a pre-reg, you're obviously most of the time, if you went on TPN round, you're, you're shadowing with someone else and you're experiencing and understanding what the roles are. You know, you're, you're gaining that clinical knowledge, you're, you know, you're problem solving, um, understanding what type of notes that you need to write depending on the type of patient. And you, there's so much that you kind of take in. But then you become that pharmacist who actually goes on the round. And for, for me, I, I love that. Mm. I was like the sense of achievement to do a TPN round as a second year resident was something that was really exciting for me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm. Um, and just feeling part of a team just, yeah, I still love it. I still, <laughs> I feel it every day now when I'm in palliative care, like I really feel valued Yeah, and it's something that's yeah. really important in terms of, um, what I like to get out of a job and yeah. what I crave. Um, so a lot of the things that I did during that residency in that three-year period really 
kind of guided who I am today in terms of the type of professional I am and, um, you know, what I like to achieve in terms of workload and things like that. So yeah, I highly recommend residency and mm. I know it's not for everyone, but I think it does provide an excellent foundation to a clinical career. Absolutely. I think for me, it, it was dealing with the night shifts that, um, you know, really formed who I became as a pharmacist, mm. um, you know, dealing with those things on your own. And then you got a real buzz from having, you know, solved a problem or, or sorted something out or, you know, I mean, in those days, resources weren't all online. So I remember, you know, rushing yeah. around to the MI office and scrabbling around in books, trying to find things out. And, mm. and then you'd provide an answer to somebody out of hours and um, you, you, you'd sorted that by yourself, you know, and that mm. huge, huge sense of achievement really from, from having done that. Yeah. And, um, the skills, it's just, it's crazy how much you, and it's not just the clinical knowledge, but the, you know, the actual skills that you learn that are transferable into different parts of your career are, are incredible. Yeah. I kind of miss the, the using the books and going into the <laughs> MI office in the night and, you know, finding all the info. And I, 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 I use the guys in St. Thomas as well, the Evelina formulary when it was the orange book as mm, a resident. Mm. We lived off that thing. <laughs> I loved it. Anything that we couldn't find, you know, you had to go to the orange book. Um, and I do miss it. And I've seen it in the office and I have a look through it sometimes. Yeah, I've got my own copy memory. on the bookshelf here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what? I should get my own so that it's, it's a little memory. It's a good <laughs> idea, actually, because eventually, you know, all these books will just go away. Mm. So when you were a, a resident and obviously you're going through different rotations, um, at what point did you start thinking about your career and what was going to happen next in terms of the specialty that you wanted to to approach? I think I was drawn to pediatrics even before I started working actually. Um, so I remember I remember as a pre-reg doing my pediatric rotation um, and at that point um, pediatric services were all on the the guys site so over by London Bridge um, in the tower block on I can't remember what floor but many many floors up uh, amazing views over London. And then between then and my pediatric rotation as a, as a band six pharmacist, pediatric services moved to the newly built Evelina Hospital. Um, and so I got to do a six month rotation as a band six um, in that hospital within the first year of it opening. Um, so that was really exciting, you know, brand new, shiny building, lots of glass, everyone really excited to be there, um, working with, you know, quite a dynamic team who had, uh, you know, set up new pharmacy. Um, so I was one of the first few people to, um, one of the first people to, to experience working there. Um, and that really just cemented my, my love of pediatrics, really. Um, so yeah, I, I worked. I worked on the cardiology ward um, as a band six. Um, also spent time in the dispensary. Um, I was working towards my diploma at the time. Um, got to work with some some brilliant pharmacists who were um, a lot more experienced than me. Um, and I was determined at that point to to pursue a career in pediatrics. Um, I'd also been a band six for 
I think two, two and a half years at that point. So I was looking towards getting a band seven job. Um, and then when one came available at uh, Imperial at St. Mary's Hospital, um, it was an obvious choice to, to apply for that. And, and I was successful. So at that point, I left Guys and St. Thomas's um, and went to work at St. Mary's. Nice. And how was that? That was brilliant. Um, it was obviously a step up in terms of responsibilities. Mm. Um, it was my first specialist role. Um, and the, the specialties that um, were provided there were quite different, actually, to, to what I'd experienced at the Evelina. Um, so St. Mary's um, uh, provides bone marrow transplants for um, patients primarily with hemoglobinopathies, so sickle cell and thalassemia. Um, and that was my first rotation as a new band seven, um, being the, the, the primary pharmacist for, for BMT. So another steep learning curve, really, because, uh, you know, I hadn't done any oncology or, or um, hematology or anything like that at that point. Um, I didn't even really know what a bone marrow transplant was. Um, so my, my induction there, I remember reading, um, you know, patients' bone marrow transplant protocols and I was thinking well I have absolutely no idea about this I I need to do some <laughs> reading um but I did you know I I read around the subject I I understood what um you know what what was happening with the transplant and the conditioning that uh, the chemotherapy that was given beforehand um what the complications of of a transplant um are likely to be in in terms of you know side effects of the medicine or the transplant um and I got to grips with it and again I worked with a, a fantastic team there um where the pharmacist was was absolutely central within the team um you know the success of a of a transplant is is dependent on medicines um and so you know my role in that team was really valued and um you know that that gives you a, a fantastic feeling of, of being being important and uh, and that your your contribution is valued um and ultimately that it's it's helping the patient uh, and you're making a meaningful difference to them. Mm. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I was uh, a resi, um, transplant was one of my top rotations. I genuinely loved my, the best part about it was the, was the education involved in, um, you know, with patients mm, and yeah. explaining to them post-op what medications were, were needed. And there was so much information that you need to provide. And you have to obviously highlight the importance of adherence. You think about drug-drug interactions, yep. even something as simple as having an acidic environment for certain medications. There was so much and it was really exciting because you would spend part of that role was spending, you know, an hour of scheduled time um, post-op with the patient to go through all the medications and there you know we used to create these little sheets and everything for them um, which we still do today obviously even with the Evelina we create them um, mm. for renal transplants and I love that aspect and I knew how much I loved <clears throat> being 
directly in inpatient care yeah. and this was with adults mm. um so obviously slightly different and and with peds though is as a band six i i was fearful i i loved it i enjoyed it so much and i learned so much at a fast pace and Rhoda, who was the the pharmacist there, um, you know, she was in the department for, you know, 30, 40 years before she recently retired. So to work alongside her felt like legendary, you know, you learn so much from her because she's been a pediatric pharmacist for so long. And, but I was fearful every time I used my green pen on a paper <laughs> drop chart. Um, and it took a while to kind of build that confidence um, with pediatric prescribe, um, you know, screening. I think um, often... Gen general pharmacists or non-pediatric pharmacists are, are, are very scared of pediatric screening. Yeah. Um, you know, fearful that they'll make an error, presumably. But, um, yeah, I've always loved it. Yeah, no. Even on weekends, I do. I used to remember, we always used to have one, you know, pediatric pharmacist on a weekend shift. And um, every time the pediatric prescriptions would come through, because it would take us so much longer to screen them, Just hand them to if that they person. were around. Yeah, you hand <laughs> over, which is terrible, because actually you should obviously spend more time. But a lot of people used to fear mm. um, screening them because it takes so long. Um, and you do have super specialist areas in big teaching hospitals. So actually some of the, the drugs are completely weird and wonderful in terms of the dosages. Um, so it's always useful to have a pediatric pharmacist to work with. Um, but now I don't have that that feeling anymore. Um, maybe because I'm so much more experienced, and you ha you build so much more confidence with time. Absolutely. But I, mm. Yeah, I do remember back then. It was only a three month rotation, so um, it was a short time uh, to spend in peds. But it isn't. It isn't scary. It, it's it's actually in some ways it's you know you're looking up all of the doses all of the time, and you actually you know like even simple items, like I check on the formulary just in case, even though I feel like I know the doses, but it helps to reiterate the doses in your mind and you then can remember them so much easily. Um, now when I'm screening my palliative care prescriptions, I'm so much faster um, yeah. than I used to, to be because you, you just, you know, you gain that experience and, and you gain that confidence and it becomes easier with time, doesn't it? Yeah. But something I always say to juniors is, you know, take your time checking doses. No one is expecting mm. you to memorize, you know, every dose for every drug for every child. I mean, that, that would be crazy. You know, even <laughs> having 15 years experience, I still routinely check doses in, in formularies and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, it's about being systematic and not cutting corners. Mm, 100%. So um, when you obviously took on this um, band seven role, mm. what were the differences that you felt between the band six and the band seven role in terms of responsibilities that were expected of you? Well, I think I had a lot more autonomy um, clinically. So you know, being tasked with the role of um, you know, working in BMT, for example, that was then that was my area to take care of, and I was expected to <clears throat> ensure that um, chemotherapy was was screened and supplied, um, that you know transplant protocols were uh, were screened, um, and there was no one really to be checking that that's what I was doing. That's not to say I didn't have good managers. I did. Um, but they trusted me um, mm. to ensure that those jobs got done. Um, 
I had people to ask for help if I if I got stuck. Um, I was also given uh, staff management responsibilities at that point. So I became a pre-reg tutor. Um, I think I was a, a diploma tutor as well at some point. Um, and I also, it, it was a much smaller team there compared to the Evelina. Um, so if my manager was, was absent, then I often had to step up to mm. be the manager for the rest of the team. Um, and so, you know, I had additional responsibilities for that. But for me, it was, it was the right time to be given those opportunities because I had the confidence and, um, I think I had the ability to do it. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it was a good, a good step slightly outside of my comfort zone, but allowed me to develop those skills um, and, and to gain more confidence. Yeah. And like you said, the autonomy is, is really important. It develops your own personal style with the way that you work as well. And, you know, you do things the way that you want to do them and what you think is appropriate for whatever ward area that you're in. Yeah. Because you are responsible for, for those patients and the service Yeah, as well. You know, it's not just the day-to-day, it's actually the long-term plan as well. Um, I think it's also really important to be working with autonomy if you were going to be teaching other people mm. because it's only by finding your only own way of doing things um, that you can be you can demonstrate that to other people yeah definitely and um, when you started doing pre-reg tutoring was this when your sort of um, passion for education started or were you interested in it in this beforehand um that's a good, good question. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think it was really just a, it was something that was expected of me at the time. True. Um, I don't recall volunteering for the role, particularly. I think it was <laughs> something that, you know, was, every band seven had to do it at some point. So I, I became a pre-reg tutor um, and I enjoyed it. Um, but I wouldn't say it was... Um, you know, it particularly was a passion at the time. I was very mm. much clinically focused. Um, and that's what, what really, um, I guess, drove me at the time was, was you know, patient interaction, being part of a multidisciplinary team. Um, that, that's what my passion was at the time. Um, the education was just an aside yeah. And I was actually, I was going to say something else that I've just thought of, um, is that you made a good point that when you worked with a slightly smaller team of, of pediatric pharmacists and, you know, the expectation to step up, for example, when your manager's not around, people always struggle. I think junior pharmacists or pre-regers always um, ask the question, well, shall I go for a smaller hospital in terms of a workplace or shall I go to a big teaching mm. hospital? And it's really good to experience both sides because when you're in a huge hospital, um, you know, you are, you are quite independent and you're expected to kind of get on with it. Um, and you do get so much exposure to, you know, interesting diseases, conditions, um, you know, the MDT working can be a huge part of, of, of the role because sometimes the small hospitals, especially, you know, several years ago, we're talking a decade ago, they weren't necessarily as developed as they are today. 
But at the same time, when you go to a smaller teaching or a smaller hospital or even sometimes the district general, your responsibilities are completely different and your expectations are much higher. Like some bound sixes who are doing pediatrics in the smaller hospitals are expected to cover the neonatal unit. And, you know, we wouldn't have that here and we wouldn't expect our band sixes to do it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's really good to experience a bit of both and then see where your personality fits. Absolutely. I mean, I think you you gain from from both of those environments, you know, mm. busy, large teaching hospital and then smaller teams. I mean, St. Mary's is still a large hospital. Yeah. Um, but the, the pediatric team within it was was smaller than the the Avelina. Having said that, they still had a NICU, a PICU, um, and two pediatric wards. So um, you know, it's it's very different, I think, to somebody working in isolation in a district general, for example. Um, Yeah. But I certainly got a lot of experience there. of working in in different clinical areas, working in intensive care, working women's, um, plus those additional responsibilities related to management um, and finance as well, um, Mm. and and general team working. Yeah, true. And after you obviously, after you did your band seven job in Imperial, you moved on to the Royal Brompton and Harefield as a senior pediatric pharmacist. Yeah. what what kind of prepared you to step up into that role um, from the band seven role that you had? So um, I think the band seven role, I was probably already doing a lot of the role that a band eight pharmacist elsewhere would do. Okay. So, you know, I mentioned that I was deputizing for the manager, for example, mm. um, <clears throat> taking on, um, you know, drug, drug and therapeutic committee uh, submissions, guideline writing, etc. Um, but you know, after I think it was it was nearly three years there. Um, you know, I felt that I was ready for a new challenge, and a maternity leave job came up at the Brompton, um, which um, you know I, I hadn't done a huge amount of respiratory medicine at that point. I had done some cardiology when I was at the Avelina as a band six. Um, so it was an attractive role. Um, and I thought, um, obviously there are pros and cons of, of taking a maternity leave because you don't know what's going to happen at the end of it. Um, but outside of work, I was also getting quite itchy feet at that point. Um, and my, my boyfriend and I at the time, now my husband, um, we had talked about, you know, possibility of, of going traveling, um, you know, ditching our jobs and, uh, and heading off for a bit. And so taking a maternity leave seemed quite a good option because it gave me a fixed end date and, mm. uh, you know, a date to, to which to work towards in terms of saying, right, you know, we're, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to stop working um, and, and we're going we're gonna to see where, where else we can go in the world. So, so I took that job um, knowing that it was, you know, maybe not secure in terms of my long-term career, um, but actually get some Band-Aid experience under my belt. Exactly. And, uh, and then, you know, have, have something exciting to look forward to at the end of it. Mm. Um, I think maternity leave jobs are amazing. I've had two now. And 
for me, it was great because I was returning to the UK and figuring out what I was going to do, what, you know, what role I was going to go in. And, you know, I left as a band six and then returned debating whether or not I should take on a um, band seven sort of rotational job and, you know, transition back into the NHS um, in an easier way, I guess, um, because I wasn't in a very clinical role when I was in the UAE. Mm. Um, and I lost uh, quite a bit of confidence in, in terms of that, because when you finish your residency, you know, you're full of beans and knowledge and excitement and you feel like you're on top of your, you know, your game. You, you feel really confident, um, in terms of your abilities. And in fact, if I had gone into an interview, um, at the end of that, residency I would have felt very confident mm. in applying for a band mm. seven and and getting a really good position that I wanted um and even though I I gained so much um you know so many leadership skills and and you know managing so many aspects of kind of pharmacy that I wasn't expecting to do when I was there I still felt nervous to come back to the UK um because I felt I judged myself a little bit too much and I felt behind my peers um, but I did contact my old residency manager and asked him what he thought. And I sent him my CV again. We discussed it through and he said, you got nothing to lose and you've got amazing experience. You need to try and apply for an 8A. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine had um, then told me that a maternity leave was coming up in Buckinghamshire and was I was literally living, you know, 25 minutes down the road by chance with my parents at the time, just moved home. Um, and the, the job was three days a week, um, as an 8A, um, you know, the pre-reg director role I did. And then, you know, two days I stepped up my clinical knowledge by going back to Oxford who they, you know, thankfully had me back as a locum and I went back to emergency admissions, um, which was really nice because I got to work um, seven to three and then you know was available in the afternoons for kind of childcare and things like that because I had a young baby at the time um, but it gave me the confidence that I needed and you know when you go back to a trust that you've worked at before and you know where the guidelines are <laughs> and you know you know everything about the intranet and it just was easy for me yeah, and it just yeah. felt um I just felt it like I was in my comfort zone and a lot of my friends were still working there. So it felt like I was returning home. That's good. It didn't felt, mm. it didn't feel like I had left. Mm. There were so many people. And even still, there are so many people who are still working there today who I, you know, did my residency with. And it, it was really nice to kind of go back to a familiar setting. Mm. It is frightening um, how quickly you can lose yeah. confidence having had I know. a period of time out of work. And yeah. That certainly applied to me in, you know, the time that I've been overseas, for example, or maternity leaves. Mm. Um, yeah, it's... I think maternity leaves are so hard to come back from. I mean, mine was, I didn't really have one. So if, but if you're off work for an entire year to then come back to interview, you know, I think it's, it's really daunting. Um, and it's challenging to keep up with your knowledge when you're trying to learn how to be a parent for the first time for mm. a lot of people mm. when they go on their first mat leave and you become very engrossed in parenting um and the time flies it does, it does. I can imagine the yeah. time really does yeah. fly by and you think crap I'm already going back to work <laughs> how did this happen um but it's really good like my point is that the maternity contracts are a great great way to experience something new without having to commit for yeah. too long yeah. um, and you're fitting some, you're, you're filling someone else's shoes. So the role is already there. 
you know, and you're maintaining it and you can do some things in terms of change if you want to. Um, but the role is already there. So you're not having to do loads of, you know, new stuff. Um, so if you're a little bit afraid of applying for something that is a tiny bit out of your comfort zone, just remember that actually you're filling a role that already exists and you can do it and you just need to kind of go outside your comfort zone a little bit and, and, and seek that challenge, I think. Mm, yeah, I think that's a, a good way of looking at, at it. You're, you're just keeping the seat warm until the other person comes back. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm really excited now because I get to ask you about all this traveling that you did. So, <laughs> well, actually, no, I, I'm going to go back in time. So you went into the senior um, pediatric role at, at Brompton yeah. and you covered the mat leave. So how how was that for you? Yeah, I got some great experience there. Mm. Um, I um, got to work on their intensive care unit. Um, I got to learn loads about cystic fibrosis um, and, um, and asthma as well. Um, did lots of TPN. Nice. Yeah. So it really you got so much variety between, um, Brompton, Imperial and your kind of, you know, rotational, um, band six at the Evelina. That's amazing. Yeah, it's brilliant. Didn't mention, but after my BMT rotation at Imperial, I then spent um, close to a year, I think, working in um, HIV and ID, which is the, the other specialism there. So, uh, yeah, I did get a, a broad, across all three trusts, I got a very broad um, mm. clinical experience. Yeah, that's really Which really is, good. is the main reason why I still call myself a, a pediatric generalist rather mm. than a specialist because, um, you know, I, I, I've covered such a, a breadth of clinical areas um, but have never, never totally specialised in any one of them. Yeah, I, w I was about to say that you're lucky, but you're not lucky. It's all, it's all, it's all you, Nick. Oh, I think there's, there's definitely some luck in there. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's get to the fun part of the travel. So you and wait, were you married at this point when you went traveling? No, was, no. Yeah, okay. So, so you and your uh, then boyfriend mm. um, decided to go traveling. So, how did you get involved with the Latika Roy Foundation mm. in India? Yeah. So, um, so well, going back a few years, when I was still at university, um, I decided after my third year that I wanted to spend my summer break um, back in India because um, I had you know amazing memories from my from my gap year um, and so I spent um, three months that summer working in a hospital in South India um, so I was working um, in their pharmacy um, I helped to implement um, a medicines information service there um, and I did some clinical teaching for um, for the pharmacists in the department um, so that really gave me um, a, a taste of, of healthcare working um, in India and I felt that I had um, you know some skills that could could be of use there um, it, it's obviously a, a country that I, I've had a real passion for um, and I've I've traveled fairly extensively now over over the country. Um, so when um, James and I were then talking about uh, going overseas, um, we were keen to go to Asia. 
Um, and I was keen in particular to go back to India. Um, and so I sought out volunteer opportunities um, that would utilize my pharmacy skills. And I was put in touch with this organization, the Latakaroi Foundation, um, which is based in uh, in Dehradun, which is um, state capital of Uttaranchal. Um, and so I, I went and worked for them um, for a few months. And um, I worked, so it's an organization um, that provides care for children with disabilities. Um, so it, it's based in the city, um, but the children who they provide care for come from um, a huge geographical area around. Um, and they've got um, a, a range of different services that they provide. Um, and this organization has been built up um, essentially by by one person. Um, it's, it's a fantastic organization. Um, so they provide um, education for children with, with disabilities. Um, so they've got a number of schools around the city, um, including um, a center for vocational training for older adolescents and, and young adults as well. So teaching them life skills, um, and for some of them, providing some employment as well um, in, in the kitchens um, and various other roles. Um, and then they also have um, an early intervention centre um, based at one of the government hospitals. Um, and that's where I was based for my time there. So um, it's a centre for, um, for children with, with any disability. Um, and the, the care model there was that the family would come and spend five full days at the centre, so a Monday to Friday. Um, so for those families who lived outside of the city, um, they would be put up in, in simple accommodation in, in, in the city. Um, and over those five days, um, they would get to see a paediatrician, a physio, a psychologist, um, a, a, an educational specialist, um, a legal advocate who would provide um, assistance with, um, uh, you know, state benefits. Uh, I, I I don't remember the specifics, but um, you know, helping families um, get what they were entitled to um, for for their disabled child. Um, the pediatrician would link in with the with the hospital at which we were based at. Um, so you know, if blood tests were needed or imaging, anything like that, then that could all be arranged. Um, so it was a one stop shop really um, for these families to um, have access to all the professionals with the experience and the knowledge um, in order to come up with a development plan for that child. Um, so, you know, the physio, for example, would, would write a, a, a physical plan for the child to, um, you know, if it, if it was a child with cerebral palsy, for example, um, to, to focus on what they needed. Um, and the, 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 other, the other staff would, would all input as well. So I worked quite closely with the pediatrician um, quite often children came in, um, you know, on a number of medicines, anti-epileptics in particular. Um, sometimes um, these children had been to see, you know, a, a whole host of 
of other pediatricians, all of whom had prescribed for their child. So there wasn't a huge amount of, of joined up prescribing. Um, so often they came in a, on a real con concoction. Nobody had looked at them in totality. Nobody had looked at interactions. No one had really spoken to the families about how best to administer these medicines. Um, so there, there was a role there for me to um, to, to really um, you know, be able to help these families get the most from their medicines and, and to minimize um, risk as well um, in terms of dosing, in terms of interactions. Um, so, so that was my main role there with the families. Um, and I also did a, a little research project for them as well. So I, um, through, with the help of a translator, I, I interviewed um, uh, a number of these families um, to try and understand what their experiences were um, of obtaining medicines, of administering medicines. Um, and th this revealed that, you know, families often weren't provided with information about um, what the medicine was doing. So their child might have been on six medicines, but actually they didn't know what each one of them was for. Um, and so, you know, I was able to highlight the importance of actually giving that information to them to explain why it's important that families do know what, me what each medicine is for, um, that they can distinguish between them. Um, they also sometimes weren't um, fully informed about how to administer a dose, how to crush a tablet, mix with water, for example, or the importance of measuring a liquid medicine in mills and not just a teaspoon. Um, and so we did some work around that as well. Um, so yeah, that, that was it, it in a nutshell, really. Um, like I say, a fantastic organization um, doing some brilliant work for, for children there. And it was, it was great to be a part of it. It sounds amazing. Sounds super rewarding as well. And you actually, it sounds like you had a, a huge impact on patient care. I think I had a small you know? impact. I think the, the organization as a whole has a huge impact. Yeah, of course, of course. But if they didn't have a, you know, this, a pharmacy advisor or a pharmacist to explain all of these elements, um, you know, it's a huge part of, of the full kind of holistic approach of, of a pediatric patient, especially the ones that have this many medications. I mean, it's similar to, you know, the, the specialty areas we have at Evelina. Some of our patients are on, you know, 10, 15 medications each, if not so many more. Um, and the, the communication and the education that we provide to parents is vital. Um, absolutely. You know, yeah. It's, it's absolutely vital yeah. um, that we have that, that impact. And without that, you know, I feel that the doctors don't have as much time. The nurses don't have as much time. We have so much more knowledge to share. Um, and it, it's a very uh, rewarding aspect of our job, which I love so much. Mm. The challenge there for me was to to try and provide a legacy because it was all very well me providing some input um, for the time that I was there. But I, I wanted to try and create something that could continue after I left. Mm. Um, so I, I tried to produce some resources for um, like optimizing doses, setting dose limits for different drugs, um, writing out, you know, 
key um, interactions, for example, into kind of quick reference guides that could be used, um, not necessarily by a specialist, but um, by other healthcare professionals who might be seeing these children. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, that, that, that was a challenge. And I, I, I probably didn't, didn't do that brilliantly. Uh, I'm sure there's, there's more that could have been done in terms of, um, you know, ensuring that the work could continue. But you were only there for a short period of time. It's quite hard to have that sort of impact in, you know, four months. Mm. Um, but it sounds like it was an amazing experience and, and it was really good timing after the little mat, mat leave contract Yeah, that you well, got to experience that. Yeah, that that's kind of what it was lined up for. So yeah. I I actually headed out to India first. So James, my husband, works in IT, and so um, he he stayed in the UK and carried on working here while I was doing that. And then he came and joined me at the end of my my time working for Latika Roy. And then we had um, about three months, three or four months, I think. Um, where we we travelled through India, Nepal, um, Cambodia, Bhutan, and uh, and finishing in Thailand. Nice. So yeah, nice little break from work. <clears throat> what was your What's your favourite part of India? Oh, um, I would have to say the north. Mm. Um, so I love being in the mountains. Yeah. Um, I not this trip, but a previous trip. I, I traveled up to Ladakh and nice. did some trekking up there. That was uh, probably my best experience. I know. I went to the Annapurna um, mm. circuit, yeah. the 21 day circuit, um, with um, another pharmacist actually who works at King's now. Um, she was a resident with me. We initially climbed Kilimanjaro together um, with some doctors that we worked with, some SHOs and physios. We went there as a team, um, so that was really fun. And then um, Deborah and I went to the Annapurna, mm, and I loved it. Yeah. God, I, I miss Momos. <laughs> they have like these dumplings, you know? Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, about? I do. God, yeah. they're so good. Every <laughs> day for Moorish. lunch. Yeah, every day for lunch. Um, because when I did that trek, that you used to stay in little camps or huts mm. along the way. And included in that was obviously all your, your meals as well. So every time we would have like a little pit stop, um, on our walk, I mean, every single day I would pick moments yeah. every day. <laughs> there was no doubt <laughs> the whole time. I just love them. And the higher up in the mountain you go, the less kind of meat that you get. So they became vegetarian yeah, for a long time. Yeah. I love vegetarian food mm, as well. Mm. Um, so initially it starts off with the chicken and then, and then it was mainly um, vegetarian with hot sauce. Yeah. yeah. We, Even now, if I go to a, a Nepalese restaurant, it have brings no back a lot of mm. good memories, you know? Yeah. No, we did some great trekking in Nepal as well. Mm. I'm a big fan of um, Kerala because I love the greenery. Yeah. Um, well, when you asked me, where, where's your favorite place? And I was thinking, oh, north, south, north, south. But no, for I me, know, for it's, me so it's, it's, it's definitely the north. But I, I do love Kerala too. Yeah. I like North Indian food. I mean, obviously, uh, my family's from Gujarat. Mm. So that, you know, that's northwest. And, and I do love um, North Indian food so much. Um, I've got a, a huge love for Goa. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time there. Um, 
on holidays and things like that. And um, and and Kerala is so beautiful. It is it's beautiful. so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, the weather's good. The greenery is amazing. I love tea. <laughs> so happy days. I did some. Yeah, I did some good traveling. Even when I did that Annapurna, it was when I was a resi. Actually, I took a little secondment for three months. Well, I tell you what. Um, when I when I girls are, are grown up we can uh, yes. you and I can go and spend some more time in India please <laughs> we'll have so much fun together <laughs> pharmacy trip this is it look at us planning <laughs> loving it so um when you got back to mm. uh, the UK and yeah. you were like you know why do I have to go back to real life um mm. was that when you applied back at Evelina not exactly so okay. um I remember sitting in a, a beachside cafe on an island in Thailand, um, going through a really tedious process of applying to locum agencies, um, which, which was pretty painful because there's so many forms to fill out and my heart wasn't really in it. I didn't really want to go and locum, but uh, I thought I needed to get something lined up for when I returned. Um, so, yeah, I went through the process of applying to locum agencies, signed up with a few of them, um, reached out to various people that I that I knew. So, you know, past managers and, and other people working within pediatrics to see if there were any jobs available. Um, and, you know, there, there were a few things that, that seemed possible, but nothing that really came to fruition. So once I was back in the UK, um, I... Um, I accepted a, a locum post um, at one of the London hospitals um, and it, it was only for a few days, uh, but actually I, I enjoyed it and it was nice to be back in a dispensary, um, back working with, with other pharmacists um, and I knew it wasn't, wasn't forever. Um, so I, I did my locuming. Um, and I think at around that time, and this would have been in, what year was this? 2012, this was. Um, I posted my status on Facebook because that's what you did in that year um, back <laughs> then. Um, and I, I wrote something like, um, you know, back in London, but haven't got a job. Um, if anyone knows of anything, let me know. Um, and off the back of that, um, somebody that I had worked with previously at Guy's and St. Thomas's, um, they sent me a message saying, um, I've, I know that, um, that Graham Davies, the professor at King's College, um, is looking for somebody to do some, some work for a few weeks, um, if you're interested. And oh. I thought, oh, that's a bit different. Hadn't considered doing any academic work before, but Mm. Why not? Um, so I knew Graham from when I did my diploma. Um, and I thought, well, he might remember me. Um, and and so I, I, I can't remember if I emailed or, or phoned him. Um, but I got in touch. Um, he remembered me, um, which hopefully that was a good thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, he explained that um, they needed somebody to assist with some preparation work for the undergraduate program, the M-Farm, um, just for a few weeks initially um, because somebody else from the team was was absent for, for a period. Um, and so they needed someone to cover. 
So I quickly jacked in the the locoming um, and <laughs> took up this this temp post um, at the nice. university. And uh, yeah, that was been I think May May 2012. Um, Amazing. So yeah, that's how I got my job. Well, that's how I got my first job at the at the university at Kings. Thank um, uh, Facebook for that one. Absolutely, I know, I know, and I, I've never been somebody to to post my life story on Facebook. It's it's yeah. not really been my thing, but you know, I I did post that that particular status update, and it, it got me a job. So that's nice. Yeah. It's amazing, actually, what social media can do. Mm. And these days, it's a million times better. Yeah, I mean, I, I was. I was naive at the time and certainly it wasn't as developed as it was now in terms of, you know, professional use, um, not Facebook particularly, but you know, I, I don't recall there being LinkedIn at the time, for example. I, I'm not sure um, if there was. I don't think I was I was involved. Um, but no, I, it never would have occurred to me to um, specifically utilize social media to get a job in those days. Um but it was uh, it was successful. So so yeah, I did I did some work over the summer for for the university, um, really just updating teaching material for for the undergraduate program, um, and then come September when because when I started in May, the students had all but finished for the year, so I was working at the university but without. Um, any students around um, but then obviously come September we had students returning new students starting um, and that's when I first uh, got involved with delivery of teaching um, and it was it was nerve-wracking the first time I did it uh, my first experience was in a very um, steep lecture theatre holding about 130 140 people um, in their induction week of M Farm One, so first week of university, and I was there um, presenting a, an introduction to clinical pharmacy or something like that, um, together with Professor Davies and uh, a couple of other members of staff. Um, I remember I got dressed up in my, my smartest work dress um, because it was <laughs> such a big occasion. I wouldn't do that now for students. <laughs> Um, but yeah that it all went from there really Um, so I think I I proved my worth hopefully in in those weeks that I was temping Um, Mm. and then I I was lucky enough to be offered a a contract um, uh, you know a permanent contract there um, which um, I so whilst I was still on the temporary contract um graham had suggested that i get back in touch with the team at the avelina it's obviously nearby um to to keep my clinical skills up and and offer half a day a week um of free time basically um to 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 get back into the swing of things with with clinical work um but also to make contact with the avelina and you know I, I I presume you know Graham was thinking ahead um, and thinking you know perhaps we can we can create a role that spans both mm. workplaces here and and that is exactly what we did and I was lucky to have the support of managers on on both sides 
um, uh, in in helping me with that. They essentially created a role for me um, nice. that involved um, three days a week working for the Evelina, so clinical, and two days a week at the university. And then was that one of the first split contracts? No, it wasn't. There were already two at that time. Okay. Um, between Kings and Guys and St. Thomas's. Um, so two other pharmacists, quite a bit seen, more senior than me, um, had been in that role um, for, for a good number of years, I think. Um, but there was obviously precedent for having roles that were split, clinical, academic, um, and so, so yeah, we just had to to sell it to to Steve Tomlin, my boss at the time. Um, nice, and luckily he he went for it. Yeah, and that, it's so amazing. And you know what, Graham is such a good person. You know, he's he really looks out for. He's got he's got really good intentions. He's a, he's a good human. He's been incredibly um, supportive of me yeah. over the years. Very and he's fortunate. still with us. Oh, yeah. Living the yeah, dream. Yeah. Yeah, I love his um, profile pic because he looks 20 years younger and <laughs> he still kept it on there. It's so cute. Um, and how did you get on with um, a split post in terms of organization and time management and things like that? I think I always knew that they would be the, the main challenges with the role. Um, but I've always been a fairly organized person um, and I was aware that that was one of my strengths. So, and I'd seen these these two other colleagues manage it well, um, also through being organized and structured, um, you know, having clear boundaries. Um, and so, so I learned a lot from them um, and having the support of managers on both sides who understood that, um, you know, my commitment was split and that I had responsibilities on both sides um, that I, I couldn't have done it without that support, um, without them having um, that awareness and acknowledging that, um, you know, I wasn't totally theirs. Um, but it's, of course, it's been challenging. And there've been times when um, you know, the demands of, of both sides have, have competed um, which you know has resulted in me feeling that I'm being torn or um, you know stretched in both directions. Um, but I like having the split role. I think um, you know my clinical experience is what um, makes me a good teacher, or hopefully I'm a good teacher. Um, I think that you know that's my strength in the teaching environment is that I can I can relate to what happens in practice. I'm not purely, purely academic. Um, and, 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 and vice versa as well. So, um, you know, the, what, what I've learned from working at the university in terms of, um, you know, pharmacy education, research, um, that's equally applicable in, in the clinical environment. Um, and so, I wouldn't give up either side. I love both of them. I know. It's one of the questions that came up when you interviewed me for your <laughs> your post is that, you know, how are you going to cope with two different jobs, really? Two different teams, two different emails, you know, two different sets of 
tasks and objectives. And I guess I had done it by chance when I took on a three-day mat leave post and then locumed for two days. Yep. So it yep. felt like, you know, two individual responsibilities. And it was it was manageable. Um, but I think one thing that really helped was the kind of the foundation in that residency where your organization and skills need to be on point. Absolutely. You have to be prepared for day shifts, night shifts, rotational, you know, every month rotating to a new environment, you know, being adaptable, being flexible, um, and then obviously completing your diploma throughout that experience. Um, so being organized and managing your time efficiently. And during that entire three years, I also traveled to Dubai to visit my then boyfriend um, every eight weeks for long weekends. Mm. Um, so I had to be super organized to allow me to have three to four days off of freedom to go and enjoy and not have to worry about studying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that really helped to provide that foundation that makes it easy for me now to be able to do a split role without feeling too overwhelmed. And like you said, you do have ups and downs depending on, you know, what we're delivering at certain times of the year. Um, and also staff capacity, what resources are available, you know, there are kind of peaks and troughs in what we do in every day, but that, that's standard with any job, even if you're in one position exactly, um, and not two, um, but just managing your time and being organized and having your own method of, you know, segregating those two jobs, like you said, is also really important um, and respecting that they are two separate areas I did when I was on your mat leave a couple of times um you know if there were Evelina meetings on certain Tuesdays and Wednesdays when I was supposed to be at King's I did try to attend if I could but then I realized quite quickly that this was not sustainable nor was it appropriate um and then I had to segregate more and just be stern and say no I'm sorry those are not my working days I can't have meetings so we have to schedule them at another time but when you're new to a department um, and you don't know people and how the team works sometimes you know you do feel like you need to go above and beyond um to prove your worth to some extent yeah no I can um, understand that I think yeah I mean I I probably still don't get it totally right in terms of mm. how I balance the two um yeah. I what you've just said for example you know whether you borrow time from one to um to, to do some work from the for the other um you know that, that probably is something that I do do um possibly too much because you end up chasing your tail a little bit mm. um but equally I don't ever want to be so rigid with my time that it closes opportunities or mm. um you know prevents progress I guess yeah and one thing I've done actually in this current post is um, I created a little Word document um, and I just put a calendar in there basically. And every day I log the hours that I'm working in different areas of, of my role. At Evelina, this is. So I log the amount of hours I spend per week doing formulary, um, doing palliative care, and then kind of like my clinical commitments and kind of, you know, all the dispensary lunch covers and things like that, the clinical lead role that we have in the afternoons. And I, I log it Monday to Friday. And then on Monday morning, I open it up again. 
And then I look and see, well, actually, you know what, last week I literally did nothing for palliative care and I'm supposed to, you know, dedicate one day per week. So this week I need to focus more time on that aspect of my Mm, role. mm. Um, And it does, sometimes you do have a couple of weeks, like at the moment, I'm super focused on formulary. There's lots of things I need to achieve in a short space of time and, um, you know, other things get pushed back. But having that awareness and, logging it and effectively writing a diary has really helped me to understand where I'm putting my work in and where I need to focus in the upcoming weeks to make that time back. That's interesting. I've I've never kept records like that. Um, yeah, it's working. Mm, it's working. Mm. It's a, I, At first it was like, God, do I have to do this? It's a bit time consuming. Um, but every day before I go home, I just jot jot it down in the mm. Word document and I've color coded it. So it makes it really easy. <laughs> of course easy. you have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm one of these people who loves a little color. So it's all color coded. Palliative care is red um, and formula is green. Um, so I, um, I look at that regularly and it does, it does help to guide me and make sure that I'm giving the appropriate amount of time for each area of my job that I'm supposed to be working in. And obviously you know, weeks go by where I feel like, you know what, I haven't spent enough time on formulary and I haven't dedicated that time. But then I will kind of push for, you know, more protected time where I'm not disturbed, where I can sit at a computer and focus on lots of jobs. Like this week, you know, on Monday I work from home and uh, everyone was like messaging me because they're like, what are you doing over there? You're literally churning out work (laughs) and sending a million and one messages, like stop. Um, Because I just felt like I was like on fire, you know, I was like a little machine at home and it was really nice. And it's so good to feel productive. I love those days. I'm so happy when I have those days because you just, that focus for me is really important. Yeah, that's Um, that's when I feel the best um about my job is is when i'm productive when i've had results um you know you can't beat that yeah we're quite similar aren't we i think we are yeah i know i love it (laughs) but you know what's amazing because you know you inspire me every day is that um when i look at your like linkedin profile and i and not even having this conversation now is just you're 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 a role model for me because i've done two years of peds and look how much you've achieved. It's amazing. And you're nervous to come on this podcast. And even other people at Evelina have said they don't have much to offer. You guys are just crazy. You have no idea how much you have to offer. Like People are going to listen to this. And this is going in the recording, by the way. People are going to listen to this and feel very satisfied to hear what pharmacists are achieving in reality. And it's amazing. And you should be proud. I'm making you blush. You are. Luckily, you, you can't it. see that. <laughs> okay, so um, so obviously you you managed this um, split role really well. I wanted to ask you actually, at what point did you decide to then pursue um, your MSc? So um, yeah, so my role at, at King's College um, was initially on the undergraduate program. Um, but I, I fairly quickly moved into um, the postgraduate program. So at the time, um, we ran uh, an MSc, a postgraduate uh, diploma, and a postgraduate certificate um, in pharmacy practice. And uh, these, these programs were for pharmacists primarily working in community. 
um, but also other areas of primary care, so CCG pharmacists, um, pharmacists in general practice. Um, the ma majority of people um, went to either certificate or diploma level, um, and we had a handful who, who continued for the full MSc. Um, and Graham, again, um, <laughs> said, you know, well, we're putting these people through the MSc, you should do an MSc. Um, and it, it was a top-up MSc because I'd already done my diploma by that point. Um, I you know, completed that as a band six. Um, so I thought, well, why not? You know, being given the opportunity. Um, so whilst I worked on the certificate and diploma programs, um, I myself did the, the MSc, um, which because it was just, a top-up um, involved a research module and then a research project, which I did at the Evelina. Nice. Yeah. What was your uh, research project about? So I thought I would challenge myself with some qualitative research, nice. um, which was not something that I'd done, had any experience of. Um, I thought, well, an MSc is all about learning. Let's give myself something to do that will that will um, you know provide a, a good learning opportunity so I set out to learn about qualitative research um, and I, I did a project that um, involved exploring um, the experiences of um, parents and carers of children who had been newly prescribed unlicensed medicines so um, I had to get ethics approval. Um, I designed, a, um, it wasn't a questionnaire because it was qualitative, but uh, a, um, a structure for an interview. Um, and I enlisted, um, I think about 15 or 20 um, parents and carers um, through our dispensary and also on wards. Um, so identifying children who had been newly started on an unlicensed medicine, um, getting their consent and then follow, following them up a few weeks after they had left the hospital um, to interview them about their experiences of um, starting on the unlicensed medicine. So exploring what information had been provided to them, um, what happened when they went to their GP um, to ask for further supplies, what happened when they went to their local pharmacy um, with the new prescription. Um, and it uncovered um, a huge number of um, difficulties, concerns, errors, um, around this practice of, you know, we send people out, we, we give them a letter to give that to their GP about what needs to be prescribed, take it to the pharmacy, this is what you should be given. Um, but the reality was very different. Um, so families experienced, you know, being sent away from their GP because the GP wasn't willing to prescribe. Um, local pharmacies ordering in different products, different strengths. Um, not being prepared to um, keep stock of the unlicensed medicine, even though the families were saying, look, they're going to be on it all the time. Can you just keep a bottle in so that you've always got some for when we bring a prescription? Um, 
and and this created a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of worry. Um, so it, it was it was super interesting. Um, and I wrote it up. I got my MSc, and uh, I was fortunate to to get it published as well. Amazing, I love it. That's a really interesting topic, actually, and it's still relevant today because we still obviously face some of those problems. It's, it's very um, relevant, and yeah, um, I, I think things have moved on since then because yeah, definitely. Um, I think we we have a better understanding now of um you know which medicines need to be retained by hospitals for prescribing and dispensing um mm. and that actually it's not reasonable to expect um a gp to uh you know prescribe something weird and wonderful that that they don't have experience of and likewise community pharmacies as well um so I think our, pr- our processes are probably better than they used to be. Um, but I'm sure some of the issues around, you know, lack of information or um, worry about you know, where the next bottle is coming from, um, I'm sure those still exist. Yeah, it's really stressful for parents. Absolutely. I mean, throughout coronavirus as well, we had a lot of issues for, for parents. And there were so many scenarios where poor parents would have to drive. You know, once I remember there was a parent who was driving from Dover mm. to Evelina to collect medications every couple of weeks, you know. Um, some of the unlicensed meds that we have, you know, have seven-day expiries. Yeah. And it, it's such a struggle for them. And it's 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 a shame that that's the case, but we are definitely moving in the right direction from several years ago. And even today in my role, we're, we're starting to, to link up with CCGs and, and integrating with other hospitals within the area, as well as the primary care network to try and improve what is available on formularies and standardize um, the types of um, medications and strengths that um, our patients need um, in our, you know, our local area, which is amazing. And I hope that we can, we can make that happen and improve the services for the, for the patients, which is also a super rewarding part of our job here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it, it's considering not just the patient, but their family, Um, you know, for a parent to have to drive, 50 miles to come and collect medicines you know that's crazy isn't it mm, and the impact know, on that nuts. family of them having to do that yeah um i think like you say things are improving i think there's still a lot more that we can do to streamline Definitely. medicine supply for families yeah. we have to we have to we need to keep working on that because we've still got a long way to go but it's on everyone's radar and it's definitely a high priority for a lot of people as well which is good um i also wanted to ask when you got involved um with the pediatric pharmaceutical care international masterclass and also um while you kind of let us know how you got involved with that maybe tell our listeners um also what it is yeah sure um so when i started working um, in my split role, so between King's College and, and the Evelina London Children's Hospital. Um, one of the um, exciting um, initiatives that um, was already in place was the, the International Masterclass. Um, so this had been set up 
um, by by a couple of my colleagues at the Avelina, um, so Steve Tomlin and Sarah Reynas. Um, they they set up a, a three day international three day masterclass in pediatric pharmaceutical care, primarily for international pharmacists, and this was um, accredited by King's Health Partners, um, which is the name of the Academic Health Sciences Centre, uh, which encompasses Guy's and St Thomas's, King's College London, um, King's College Hospital, and also the the South London Maudsley. So the three three local NHS trusts and and the university. So it was endorsed by KHP um, um, from an academic perspective, um, delivered by a team of clinical experts from within the Evelina. Um, and a lot of work had gone into setting this up, and I, I cannot claim um, any recognition for that. It was all done before before I arrived. Um, but because I was now in this in this split role that spanned the two organisations, um, I was well placed to um, provide the the academic input into the program, um, and and help with its facilitation. Um, so the masterclass has run nearly every year um, for the past ten or so years, um, and it's attracted delegates from from all over the world, um, from I think from every continent, um, and it's been hugely successful. Um, it's designed for pharmacists who have an interest in pediatrics, um, and it provides teaching, training, hands-on experience of delivering um, patient-facing pediatric pharmaceutical care. So we have sessions on um, pediatric pharmacokinetics, um, on formulations and how to choose a formulation for a child, um, the significance of unlicensed medicines, using licensed medicines off-label, so outside of their marketing authorization. Um, we have sessions on um, intensive care, both pediatric and neonatal, on fluids, on infection, um, we have a session on um, maternity, so obstetrics, um, and we we also have a, a practical um, focus. So um, so this isn't just theoretical teaching. This is about how you apply this knowledge um, to patient cases. So um, you know we examine patient cases. We we look at their their medication history. We look at the interventions that a pharmacist can make. How they can optimize the patient's care. Um, the importance of working with other members of the multidisciplinary team, the doctors, the the, the nurses, and others, um, all of whom uh, input into that patient's care. Um, families as well, obviously, the parents and carers, um, ensuring that um, we consider what will happen when that child is discharged from hospital. So who's going to continue prescribing those medicines? So we're talking about my research, um, you know, what if it's an unlicensed medicine? Who's going to prescribe that safely? Um, how can we ensure um, that this patient's medicines can continue uninterrupted um, without any safety issues? So 
obviously a team like the Avelina, we've got a, a huge amount of experience um, and practical practical knowledge. Um, and the idea of the masterclass is that we get to share that with a group of international pharmacists who all bring their own knowledge and skills from their home country as well. Um, we have lots of debates, discussions around how things are done in different places with the idea that people can learn um, from others and from us at the Avelina. So it, it's a, a a brilliant initiative. Um, unfortunately, last year we didn't get to run it because of COVID. Um, but this year we we will be running it, albeit virtual. Um, but we hope to emulate a lot of the teaching that we would have done if it had been in person. Uh, and hopefully it will have the added advantage of making it more accessible for people, um, particularly in other countries. Um, so yeah, watch this space. It will be happening in October. Yeah, definitely watch this space, guys, because um, we'll be doing some advertising and letting you um, know more information about um, what we're planning to do with the virtual course this year, um, prices, timeframes, etc. So I will add that onto the show notes when we release this episode, and it will also um, be available on social media platforms too. I wanted to also ask about the um, link um, between King's and Evelina in terms of the international internship program, which is something else that you've been involved with as well. So the internship um, is is similar to the masterclass in that it has been designed primarily for international pharmacists to um, come to the Avelina to get um, teaching, training and practical experience um, working as a paediatric pharmacist. Um, so the internship is typically a, a six-week program. And during those six weeks, um, the, the international pharmacist will be um, registered on a, an academic module at King's College London. Um, so it's a, it's a formal program of study. Um, but all of the teaching is de is delivered in the clinical environment. So again, it's not lecture based in a traditional setting. Um, you are very much part of the clinical team. You will um, shadow our pharmacists. You will learn on the job um, how we deliver pediatric pharmaceutical care. Um, and you'll be expected to join in with that as well. So you will have, um, you know, practical experience of um, taking a, a, a drug history, doing a medicines reconciliation, um, assessing a patient's therapy for um, appropriateness and efficacy and safety. Um, and you'll be taught the skills to do this along the way. Um, and for the, the academic side of things, um, there are um, a series of pieces of coursework that you do alongside the, the placement, um, which allow you to demonstrate what you've learned in your practice. Um, for example, writing up a case study um, or uh, doing a, a review of an unlicensed medicine for a, a specific patient need. Um, and you submit those pieces of work as a portfolio at the end to get um, academic recognition um, for your time here. Um, so that 
is also a, a really exciting project to be involved with. Um, it allows me to combine um, the, the two the two sides of my job, so my, my academic side and my clinical side. Um, and I, I love supporting the pharmacist through that program. Um, it, it's it's fantastic to, to watch um, somebody really get stuck in with the team, even in quite a short space of time. Um, and um, you know, learn new skills, learn new knowledge, um, and be able to demonstrate that at the end of it. Um, and again, the emphasis is really very much on, um, you know, imparting skills and knowledge that can be taken home to um, the country that they've come from, um, the workplace that they've come from, um, and, and giving them the tools to be able to um, to utilize that knowledge, those skills, um, to to help patients back there yeah I mean I've seen two students um since working at the Avelina one from Sweden and one from Hong Kong and they were both such a pleasure to work with um super enthusiastic loved pediatrics really really happy to to work with us and they gained so much um knowledge and 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 skill from working with us and it was really nice because obviously part of the um, the coursework is to have a look at um, what they've seen um, at the Evelina and what they can take home with them. And reading that was for both of them was really interesting because what they do for pharmacy services um, in in their own organisations is really is always quite different to what we do. Um, and it's nice to share that knowledge and experience and learn from each other as well. It's it's fascinating hearing yeah. how pharmacy operates in different countries. Yeah. Um, and actually, I've learned so much from hearing from from other people from from other countries. Um, and actually, you know, there's so much that we can learn from other people. It, it's not a one way process by any means. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to ask you kind of one more sort of or one more topics really before we kind of close off the podcast is that um, obviously now you've been with Evelina for for nearly a decade um, (laughs) and your current role um, with King's is the program director for postgraduate um, pharmacy practice and the MSc program and how how did you get to that point? Um, you know, how did you develop your your skills and knowledge and experience in order to kind of start off as a lecturer on a kind of part time job um, for the undergraduate M farm students, and then you work your way um, into a po- program director? Yeah, um, certainly, I, I learned a lot from doing the MSc. Um, I think having worked in an academic environment for a number of years now. Um, I've uh, acquired a lot of knowledge um, of academic process um, mm. and and of teaching as well. So, um, you know, teaching methods, um, how to how to assess, um, how to write a curriculum, um, how to plan a a learning episode, um, and I guess that combined with my clinical knowledge um, has allowed me to to get to the point where I am now, where I oversee postgraduate professional studies. Um, so I've you know I've mentioned the certificate, the diploma, of the MSc previously. Um, those programs are actually um, they they've been um, 
put on hold for the moment. We're in the process of developing some new programs, um, which will specifically be for pharmacists in primary care, um, so general practice and PCNs. Um, we also deliver the, the program for independent prescribing. Um, so, so we have about 100 pharmacists going through our IP program every year. Um, and as the numbers have increased through that, um, we've been able to take on more staff. Um, so I now oversee um, a mini team um, of pharmacists who, who collectively deliver our postgraduate offerings. Um, so it, it's it, it's a great team to work with. We're, we're um, I think, delivering you know good quality education that um, is meeting the needs of pharmacists, and you know that's obviously the primary aim of what we're trying to do. We need to be meeting the needs of the profession, um, and so having um, you know one foot in clinical and one foot in academic um, really helps move that because. Um, I'm I'm in touch I think with with what the profession needs. Mm. It's a perfect combo. It really is. It really it they both fit so well together and I think what is perfect about the mix between Kings and Evelina is the the fact that you can utilize a lot of your educational skills in the Evelina role on a day-to-day basis, whether you're with pre-regs, whether you're with the international internship students, whether you're with step pharmacists, rotational band seven pharmacists who are with us for a year, and obviously the masterclass. There is so much opportunity to learn and grow and develop as an individual, as a professional. Um, And for you and even for me as an academic link pharmacist, I have so much more to learn and there's so much to get involved with. And I mean, you know, I get a bit excited <laughs> and enthusiastic about um, getting involved with a masterclass, but it is a, a genuine interest in, in, in learning from the people around me and being involved in something. And this is where you develop the skills that you possibly didn't have before. I mean, I when I first did your job um in the first two weeks I started at King's I taught um the MFARM um one students for the first time mm. I was literally sweating yeah. it was like well over a yeah. hundred students it's in daunting. that crazy lecture <laughs> and I just thought oh, oh my god this is crazy but I have to I am the type of person that needs to go outside of my comfort zone to thrive and I need to do it and I love pushing myself and I do really enjoy it and I, I know that sounds scary for a lot of people, but for me, I really, really, I, I love that aspect of of just pushing myself and trying something new and just experiencing things. And I do get like overly enthusiastic about things sometimes, but it's who I am and I just want to be myself and I'm just going to enjoy the process. And even like working with you on, on the masterclass so far and, and transferring it from a face-to-face program to a virtual program is really exciting. It, it's something that you're going to develop over the next few months and, and then we're implementing it and we're going to see what the feedback's like. And I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I'm looking I am forward too. to that. I think, yeah. um, I mean, it will be different, obviously, doing it virtually, but uh, mm. um, 
I, I think in some ways it will be it will be a really positive change. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we've got some exciting ideas of how we can still um, ensure that it's interactive and that exactly. we're focusing on on skills and application of skills. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's not just going to be talking to a screen. Um, exactly. But just going back to what you said about, you know, how I've got lots of opportunities to use my my dual skills at the Evelina through you know, pre-regs and steps and um, you know, residents, etc. Um, mm. I guess what occurred to me when you said that was actually um, you don't need teaching qualifications or teaching experience to do a lot of those roles. Um, and actually, I think what's more important is just being a good role model. Yeah. And anybody can be a good role model. You know, this is something which. I believe all of our staff, um, it, it should be a behavior that they have. Um, you know, everybody can teach a pre-reg, everybody can teach a band six pharmacist by role modeling what they do. Yeah, agreed. And no one is expecting you to be perfect at all times in the job. I mean, I have every day, I, I probably learn something new that I didn't know before even from our juniors sometimes yeah because some of our band sevens have been doing pediatrics a lot longer than me and even sometimes with PN when they come to the wards and they help me out I, I don't have any shame I know that I'm I'm an 8a and they're a band seven but actually you know what we're a team and we're here for the patient at the end of the day so it doesn't matter as long as you're willing to grow and develop and improve and do what's best for the patient yeah you're winning yep yep and not be afraid to say when you don't know something exactly um and and it is really important like you say that the whole um kind of behavior of being a role model for for juniors is really important and, and an excellent part of of our profession and when you look at your career nick as in as a whole, I mean, it's amazing how much you've achieved and all the different types of skills and experience. And it just showcases what pharmacy has to offer. Like you never think about it like that because you just think, you know, maybe you believe like in your mind, I'm a pediatric pharmacist and I'm an academic, but look at all of the different types of jobs, the different, um, you know, the trust that you've worked at and and the skill set that you've gained along the way. And it's it's really developed into obviously who you are today which is amazing so usually when I end the podcast I ask my three favorite questions go on then um you ready Mm -hmm. let's do this so being a pharmacist means being a pharmacist means being an expert in medicines and using that expertise to to help your patients exactly what it comes down to yeah and if you wrote a letter to yourself which you read on the day that you registered as a pharmacist what would you advise yourself (laughs) um i think it would be to to grab opportunities because i had no idea how many opportunities i would I would come across as a pharmacist. You know, when I was at university, the choice pretty much was you go and be a community pharmacist or you go and be a hospital pharmacist. And the the odd few went into industry. Whereas actually, 
there are there are so many more opportunities of you know what you can become as a pharmacist and you know the world's your oyster really it's it's for you to go and seek out those opportunities and to and to grab them with both hands yeah i love that and in 10 years time i will be i will still be a pharmacist <laughs> hopefully i will still be a pediatric pharmacist but i don't know what oh. i'll be doing a mother of 3 no <laughs> <laughs> Happy with two, thank you. <laughs> you can share, Lily. <laughs> and then we can all go to India. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait. Um, you know, I just want to say thanks again for coming onto the podcast because, um, you know, you've given up your time for me today. And it's really actually, it's nice because we've, we've only really worked together now for, where are we, May? Six months. Six months, yeah. So we haven't really gotten to know each other as, as well as, as I'd like. And we've got lots to look forward to over the next few months. And tonight was really good for me to really get to know you. Yeah, and, it's, um, it's been a pleasure. So many similarities in, in, our, in our kind of like work ethic and, and um, personalities, let's call it. <laughs> Um, so it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast tonight so thanks Nick thank you if you enjoyed this episode please share it with others you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Pharmacist Diaries UK and on Twitter at Farm Diaries UK that is P-H-A-R-M Diaries UK subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform so you can be notified when a new episode is released Finally, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave me a review as it will help the podcast reach more people. If you have any suggestions for guests you want me to talk to or if you'd like to come on yourself, please feel free to contact me via social media or email at info at pharmacistdiaries.com.